Our text for this morning is Zephaniah chapter 3. Today is our last sermon in the book of Zephaniah. We've been working through this minor prophet. If you have a pew Bible and you want to follow along, Zephaniah is on page 939 in your pew Bible. little tiny minor prophet in the back of the Old Testament. It's almost easier to go to Matthew and work your way left. Work your way left to find Zephaniah chapter 3. This is our last sermon, and when I first started and thought on Zephaniah, I had about three Sundays I was going to try to fill in one for each chapter, and I thought, I hope I can make this last uh, three chapters, three Sundays, and now that we're into it, I kind of wish I had a couple more uh, to get through all of the, the themes that are in this book, so, um, but we're going to just today try to knock out this whole third chapter. So far in Zephaniah, we've seen quite a bit of heavy Judgment. The judgment is just one of the huge themes screaming at us from the book of Zephaniah. Judgment on the whole world in general in chapter 1. Judgment on specific regions of the nations surrounding Jerusalem in chapter 2. And then here this morning will be judgment specifically coming to the people in Jerusalem. For the first nine verses... God is speaking more judgment through the prophet Zephaniah. So we're going to break this reading up this morning into two passages. We'll start reading verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3, and then we will break and read chapter nine or verse chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 to finish off. So on page whatever of your pew Bible, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not have been cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. These first eight verses we get another look at the sinfulness of God's people. Right off the bat, God calls them rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Zephaniah, when we started out, I said we're not tackling this book because it's an easy book, right? 
there's a lot of tough, difficult themes in here. We're, we're not tackling this because it's easy. We're tackling this because it's like medicine. Sometimes the things you need to do that are the best for you are not easy things, yet they are true and need to be done. And so Zephaniah gives us another eight verses of a burner this morning. And he starts out saying, Woe is the rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. I guess that God somehow has missed the, uh, the news flash of how important it is that everybody just feels so good about themselves. God didn't get the memo about needing to make everybody just feel good about themselves. That when you gather here this morning, and, and the way it's typically done in churches today, is that you gather, and my main goal is just to kind of prop you up to make sure you feel good about yourself. That is not the message of the Bible, that you and, 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 all, and what we're going to lay out here is that somehow you just feel good about yourself. Um, I had a conversation with someone who'd been coming to church a, a few months ago, and they were, they were walking out with someone they'd come to church with, and they were discussing this, the morning sermon or whatever, and they asked the question, well, you, do you feel better? And they said, well, I don't, I don't really feel better about myself. But, but strangely, I feel better. And, and that's, that is my hope here, is that what I want to do is not placard up here for you your greatness. What I want to do is to show us the reality of our sinfulness and placard the greatness of Christ, the greatness of our God, the value of Jesus Christ, the the, the exaltation we want to have here is not how great we are, but how great God is, how great Christ is, how valuable Jesus is. And then in seeing His great value, in seeing His great worth, we then are caught up in His love for us. We are caught up into His great value, and our worth then no longer flows from some sort of propping ourselves up, but our worth flows from the overwhelming outflow of His immense value into us as His children, as believers in Christ. We're wanting to placard Christ. That's what I want to do with this. And that's why we tackle Zephaniah. That really hits us hard. Because the goal here is not to prop ourselves falsely up. The goal is that we would gaze upon the worth of Christ and be caught up in that. And so Zephaniah doesn't come to the church and say, well, you got some things wrong, but you know, really you're okay. No, God lays it out on the line. He calls them out on their sinfulness. Three things quickly in this first half of the passage of this chapter. Three things I want to look at, and they kind of build upon each other that God is highlighting with the sin of these people. They accept no correction. End of verse 2 says, She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. This is the exact, this is the people of God are gathering and they don't want to hear any sort of bad news. They don't want to hear any correction. They don't want to be told what to do. They've got it all figured out. They don't want to be corrected. It's very similar to 2 Timothy chapter 4 in our same times, but Paul warns of the last days, that this is what's going to happen. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth, wander off into, into myths. 
these, they, this people back in Zephaniah's time are doing the very thing Paul warns Timothy is going to be coming up in these last days, that people don't want to accept correction. We don't want to hear the reality of the things of our lives that are sinful, are wrong, that God is angry at and does not like. We don't want to hear the idea that we should be corrected. And so what churches do and what many people do and what the nations were doing then is they gather for themselves teachers who will just tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. They did not want to accept correction. Boy, is this not... I mean, if I, don't, if I have to sell you on this reality that we live in a culture that basically, if you don't tell me what I want to hear, I'm going to go somewhere else to someone who will. I'm going to go get, an, I'm going to get another opinion, another opinion, another opinion until I finally hear what I want to hear. Because I do not want to, the, the problem is not me until I find the person that says the problem is always out there. That's the voice that I want to listen to. And Zephaniah calls them on it. Says they are a people who will accept no correction. They will listen to no voice. And it goes on to just what we've been talking about. <clears throat> Verse 4. Because they don't want to hear correction. Because they don't want to listen to any voice. What do they do? They gather leaders who are fickle, treacherous, and profane what is holy. They do not want to accept correction. They do not want to hear any, listen to any voice that would say the problem might be their own sinfulness, might be themselves. And so they gather teachers who are fickle, treacherous men, and priests who profane what is holy. We are a culture of people who do not want to hear correction if the correction means that there is something about us that is wrong and needs to change. We are a culture that does not want to hear Correction, if the correction means there is something about us that needs to change, just tell us how everything out there needs to change. And is this not how the news media works? Is this not how the political environment works that we've all suffered through for, it seems like, the past four years, uh, the political cycle? of The problem is all these things out here because no one can actually come in and say the problem, and this doesn't maybe apply to politics, but the problem is you. The problem is your own sinfulness. The problem as, is, is not all of these things out here. The problem is inside of us. And what we don't want to hear in our culture today is any correction that has to do with the idea that the problem isn't just out there, that the biggest problem I have is myself. And that's what I need to face up to. But we don't want to hear that, so we gather fickle prophets, treacherous men who profane what is holy and do violence to the law. And then when they... Maybe by chance they get warned. Maybe a voice like Zephaniah's comes through to them. These people who don't want to hear correction. So they gather people who will scratch their itching ears. Maybe the voice comes through of sense. Maybe a prophet comes to them and declares to them, repent, the day of the Lord is at hand. How do they respond? How do they respond? They double down on their sinfulness. They double down on their sinfulness. Verse 8, or no, verse Seven into verse seven, but they God is shocked. She says after this rebuke, surely you will fear me. Surely you will accept correction in verse seven. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. A voice is coming out to them. Stand corrected. Repent. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. They double down on their sinfulness. And you, we could go through examples of this. 
but somebody who, who is starting down the path of walking away in their sinfulness, is starting down the path of toying around with a certain sin of whatever type, and a voice comes in and says, you know, this is, this is wrong, this is sin, you should not pursue this. That person has an option, it seems like, to either repent and turn back, or many times you'll see them double down on their offense. They'll double down. They'll go even harder in an effort to desensitize themselves to the reality of their sinfulness. This is what was going on in Zephaniah's day. And to tell you the truth, it is not that different from what happens in the human heart yet today. What makes Zephaniah such an interesting prophet and the Bible such an interesting book is how it really lays out for us the reality of sinful human nature. Robertson says in his commentary, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is what happens uh, after the, the life and death of Jesus, his resurrection, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 anticipated that great day of Yahweh, which shall consummate the Lord's judgments, even as did the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, which is the destruction that's coming for the people of Zephaniah. Even as in Zephaniah's prophecy, so also in Jesus' prophecy, the judgment of God on Jerusalem inevitably anticipates the final devastation of the nations. This day of the Lord that Zephaniah is warning for them that is coming, the day of the Lord that Jesus warned for those who were there in his time, that that day of the Lord is coming, that did happen in AD 70. Those are all type and shadow of the great day of the Lord that is yet coming when God will wipe out the nations for their sin. The screaming message still to us from Zephaniah is this. God hates sin and will punish sinners. We're still stuck there. The first eight verses of Zephaniah chapter 3. The climax of this message is 3.8 when he says this, In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. We would be wise to heed this warning. We would be wise to heed this warning. It's not just those in Zephaniah's day who have the day of the Lord coming toward them. We all do. The day of the Lord is coming. We need to sit under this stern warning of our sinfulness and the wrath that we deserve and repent. The reason why I wanted to take time in these first eight verses is to let the heavy reality of our sinfulness and the wrath that we deserve to hit us like the ton of bricks that it is supposed to. We are to confess, this is me. Zephaniah has me nailed to the wall and then to look away from ourselves and look to the one who is mighty to save. It is in the full and unwavering admittance of God's just judgment against us that the glory of God and his gift to us shines in full brightness. One of the commentators that I was reading conceded the point that Zephaniah is one of the toughest, darkest books that there is in the Old Testament. Just crushes every reader because of its just sweeping wrath and judgment against sin. It is one of the darkest and toughest books to read because of the universal scope of the judgment that it lays out. But, he says, the book of Zephaniah is also one of the most beautiful books because of its final verses. In there we read of the light of the glory of God that comes to us 
from the depths of our darkness and the depths of our despair. So at this point, we'll read verses 9 on down through 20 and finish the book of Zephaniah. Back in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech to all of them that commit that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Broadly, verses 9 through 13 speak of this Gentile in gathering into the people of God, these Gentiles. For at this time, I will change the speech of the peoples into a pure speech. And what is that pure speech? They're going to call upon the name of the Lord. God is going to, at that day, gather from every tribe, tongue, and nation a people for himself who will have a pure speech calling upon the name of the Lord. So verses 9 through 13 speaks of this ingathering of the Gentiles into the people of God, where they'll be free from sin itself. Verse 13 is fascinating. We're not going to take time this morning. But what we see here is not just free from all this external evil that we all would love to see happen, but that we see a freedom from this internal struggle that we all live with in our sinfulness. They'll do no injustice. They'll speak no lies. Nor will we found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. The day when our very sin itself is totally wiped away and that our struggle with against our sin nature is gone forever. Verses 9-13 through 13 speak generally of this gathering in of the Gentiles to the people of God. And then 14-20 through 20 speaks of the great joy this group of the people of God will enjoy forever. Four things 
to finish off four things here that I want to highlight. And really, I, I, just, I, was this, I was just meditating on this all week long, the beauty of this passage of what God is going to do for his people. I want to encourage you. I can't cover all of these things. I'm going to take four. Read over this. Weep over this. Rejoice over this passage. The beauty of the day of the Lord for God's people. First thing I want to highlight is their freedom from the judgments against them. They are be, they will be, we will be, the people of God will be freed from the judgments that are against them. After all of these repeated attacks of the judgment that we are owed because of our sinfulness, of God hating sin, God punishing sinners, all of this ramping up on the way for those who are in rebellion against God, we find this call for the people of God that the judgments that are against them will be wiped away. The Lord has taken away the judgments against them. The reason why I want us to be so bold into facing the reality of our sinfulness is that when you hit the bottom of that reality, when you allow yourself to confess how how despicable so much of your life, how, how rough you are, how messed up you are, when you admit how messed up you are, it gives you the ability to see the beauty of what it means when God wipes away the judgments that are against you. And this is what he's going to do for his people. He is going to wipe away the judgments that are against them. Sinners deserving of the condemnation of God having their judgment removed? We should wonder at that, at the reality that this just holy God who has no obligation to be kind or gracious to us at all, we have rebelled against Him ever since the fall. He has no reason to look upon us with grace and mercy, and yet here we see He wipes away the judgments that are against them. How can a God of justice do this? Well, he sends his son. He incarnates, puts on flesh, comes to earth, lives the righteous life that the people of Zephaniah's time should have lived, that was the righteous life that we all should have lived. He merits the favor of God. And yet, he dies on a tree. He suffers on the cross. Not for his own sin, he had none. He suffers on the cross for the sin of God's people, for the sin of John 3.16 tells for the sin of the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God, Christ comes, lives the life we should live, dies the death that we all deserve so that through repentance and faith, the judgments that stand against us are laid on him and cleared from us. The judgment that should be laid on us is cleared, is laid upon Christ and cleared from us. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Christ redeems us from the judgment of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 For cursed is everyone who is hung, hanged on a tree. We are made righteous. Our judgments will be wiped away. Second thing, we will be freed from judgments. judgments. We will also be freed from evil. Verse into verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again... Fear evil. Is that a good word for anybody else besides me? I mean, never again fear evil. I, I mean, this this life is so unpredictable. It is, I mean, this we we never know what's around the corner. We are finite creatures. 
We cannot see the future. We do not know what tomorrow holds. And though we are people of faith, and yes, we trust our lives in the hands of God, that also does mean we do not know what tomorrow brings for us in this life. And there is a certain amount of anxiety and fear that comes with reality. We do not know what tomorrow holds. And God on this great day of the Lord is not going to make us infinite so that we understand tomorrow, but He's going to reveal His infiniteness and His power to forever wipe every fear from our lives. You shall never again fear evil. Are you going through anything in this life? Are you wrestling with anything? Are you worried about anything tomorrow? You struggle with that anxiety. Listen, dear Christian, the day is coming. On the day of the Lord when Christ returns, all fear will be wiped away. What a day that will be. We'll be freed from judgments. We'll be freed from evil. We'll be freed from shame. Verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise. Changing their shame into praise. We're almost allergic to shame in our culture today. We never want anyone to feel ashamed of anything. That, you know, you should never, you are perfect just the way you are. Don't ever feel shame about anything. But shame is a very important quality. And when when your kids get into a fight, like I'm just saying, for instance, if you had maybe a four-year-old and a one-year-old in your house, and the four-year-old might do something naughty to his, or to their, this hypothetical, to their little sister, (laughs) and you discipline them, you want them to feel some shame for doing what they shouldn't have done. I mean, to, to create a world where there is no shame in, in, in this fallen planet when we live with sinners, if there's no shame involved with sinners, we've got a big mess on our hands. And we do. We all live with a certain amount of shame. And it's right to, to look at your sin, to look at your rebellion against the holy, righteous God, and to feel shame that we have done this is a reality in the life of a Christian. There is shame. But on that, ever since Adam and Eve, what do they first do? They sin, they eat the, eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the first thing they do is they cover themselves because they feel shame. They've been exposed. And I bet if we could take all of your lives and lay them out here for everyone to peruse, you might think, give me a fig leaf. I'd like to cover up. I feel some shame. But on that day, on that day, shame is gone. On that day, we are fully known Our judgments are wiped away. We are freed from evil. And our shame not only is gone, but our shame becomes rejoicing because of the one who has delivered us from our judgments. Shame is no more. Shame is no more. We are fully known, fully exposed, and delighted in the love of our God through Christ our Savior. Freed from judgments, freed from evil, freed from shame, and free in the joy of the Father's delight. Freed from judgment, freed from evil, free from shame, shame, and free in the great joy of the Father. Verse 17, The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. My daughter's developing bad sleep habits. If you see the bags under my eyes, that's why. 
but she's, she's waking up, and, and, I, and I, she's my little girl, so I baby her, and it's bad. But, uh, but there's something about you just can't resist when your child is in there crying in the crib, and you go in, and you pick them up, and they just, they're upset. You know, they're crying. They, they, they're, they're bothered. You pick them up, and they lay your head on your shoulder, and they just quiet in, in the love of their father. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for it. I'm in trouble. I, you that have, gone with, have kids that have grown up, you know I'm in trouble. But, but the, 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 um, just the, the being quieted by the love of a father. This life is so loud and has so much noise in it and so many troubles and things going on that just there's a, a constant buzz of disturbance and terror and anxiety and pressures. And the day is coming when all of that noise quieted by this love. Like an upset child who has gone into an uncontrollable crying mode will be picked up by our Father and hushed and quieted by the strong arms of the One who rules and can fix it all. This is our God. Do you know this God? Do you know this God? This God who will free you from your judgments. This God who will free you from every taste of evil. This God who will free you from your very own sin. This God who will free you from shame. And this God who will free you into His great joy. The day of His anger, this God, the day of His anger is coming. And on that day, everyone who is quietly satisfied with themselves will be wiped off the face of the earth screaming and crying in loudness, crying out their hatred of God in their ways. Everyone who is quietly satisfied in this life at the day of the Lord will become quite loud when the punishment, when the wrath of God comes their way. In contrast, everyone who is screaming and crying out over their own sin today in repentance and in desperation for the deliverance that Christ alone can provide Those who are screaming here, God deliver, God forgive me, God wipe away my judgments, God free me from evil, God free me from the sin in myself. Those who are loud today will be quiet then in the arms of his love. They will find themselves quieted by the one who is truly mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Zephaniah's call to us is simply this in closing. Repent, sinners, The day of the anger of the Lord is near. Repent. Repent and believe, looking to the one who is mighty to save. Repent. Repent. Repent and believe. Repent and sing and rejoice and exult. You will be freed from your judgments. You will be freed from evil. You will be freed from your shame. And you will be free to enjoy the fullness of His joy forever. Repent, believe, rejoice. Is Zephaniah's screaming declaration to us. Let's pray. Father, as we head to celebrate communion in these next few minutes, God, we want to be a people of repentance. Zephaniah has nailed me to the wall. He's called my number. And Father, this morning I pray that everyone in this room who has also felt their, their conscience tugged, God, we'd be quick to repent, confessing our sins, 
laying them out before you, God. This is who I am, God. Forgive. Forgive. That, God, in our repentance, we would look to Christ. We would believe in the sacrifice that is sufficient to wash away all of our guilt. And that as we repent and believe, God, that it would overflow into exuberant rejoicing of the judgments that are wiped away from me, the freedom from evil that is coming our way, the freedom from shame, and the freeness in your joy forever. Work in our hearts now, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.